It's November 5th, 1872. An early morning fog hangs over the streets of Rochester, New York. Beneath a flickering street lamp, the proprietor of a newsstand sits huddled in his booth, arms folded, braced against the cold. He looks up as a streetcar rattles past, its wheels throwing up dead leaves from the road. The faces of its passengers are hidden behind newspapers. The headline of the New York Herald reads, Election Today, May the Best Man Win. For months, supporters of incumbent Republican President Ulysses S. Grant have been battling it out on the campaign trail against their Democratic opponent, Horace Greeley. And today, the nation will vote. But the newsstand proprietor yawns. Politics doesn't interest him. He probably won't even bother casting a ballot. Just as his eyelids are beginning to droop, he spots something unusual in the street. A group of nine women striding down the sidewalk, their long, ruffled skirts trailing in the dirt. The proprietor whistles and shakes his head with a grin. There's a sight you don't see every day, he thinks. But as the women pass by his stand, his smile turns into a sneer when he realizes who's at the head of the pack. Susan B. Anthony. She's infamous for being a rabble-rouser and a vocal advocate for women's suffrage. Now it seems she's causing trouble again. The proprietor tuts disapprovingly. He remembers the good old days. First women wanted to earn a paycheck, then own property. Now they want the vote. These women will never be satisfied, the man mutters to himself. But these women aren't just dissatisfied. They're determined. Walking up the street right now, past the disapproving news seller, Susan B. Anthony is on her way to flout the law. In a country that bars her voice from being heard, she will vote illegally in the 1872 presidential election. And in doing so, she will strike a blow for women's rights and change the course of history forever. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 5th, the vote of Susan B. Anthony. It's April 1848, decades before Susan B. Anthony illegally casts a ballot. The state of New York has passed the Married Women's Property Act, setting a precedent for other states to grant married women the right to own property. In the years that follow, women will attain the right in some states to custody over their children and control of their earnings, gaining a measure of financial independence from their husbands. But for Susan B. Anthony, a 28-year-old schoolteacher turned social reformer, this progress means nothing without the most important right of all, the right to vote. The daughter of a Quaker abolitionist from Massachusetts, Anthony has a profound sense of right and wrong, and she's utterly uncompromising. She will later say, It is a downright mockery to talk to women of their enjoyment of the blessings of liberty when they are denied the use of the only means of securing them, the ballot. But in July 1848, the movement is just gathering steam. Over 300 people meet at Seneca Falls in New York to attend the first National Women's Rights Convention. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is one of the organizers. She stands before the crowd and declares, 
we are assembled to protest against a form of government existing without the consent of the governed to declare our right to be as free as man is free. The message is getting across. Horace Greeley, then the influential editor of the New York Tribune and later presidential candidate, concedes that when a sincere Republican is asked to say in sober earnest what adequate reason he can give for refusing the demand of women to an equal participation in men in political rights, he must answer none at all. For Anthony and her fellow reformers, the progress is palpable and exhilarating. But then the 1860s arrive, and a seismic event quells the fires of the movement. Between 1861 and 1865, the United States is riven by a bitter and bloody conflict. The Civil War drowns out any protests of the suffragists, many of whom plow their efforts into another, more immediately pressing inequality, slavery. Women's rights activists have always aligned their cause with that of abolitionists. Many pioneering suffragists, Anthony included, started out as anti-slavery reformers. The famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass formed a lifelong friendship with Anthony, a friendship founded on mutual admiration and shared conviction. But in the years following the Civil War, this alliance crumbles. In 1865, the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. Three years later, the 14th Amendment reaffirms the freedoms of former slaves. It states that anyone born or naturalized in the United States is an American citizen, and no law may take away their rights to life, liberty, or property. It's a landmark piece of legislation, but it doesn't apply to all of the population. Citizens refers exclusively to men. This causes a bitter schism between Susan B. Anthony and her old friend Frederick Douglass. In 1869, at a meeting of the American Equal Rights Association, this bitterness comes to a head as members debate the 15th Amendment, which bars voter discrimination based on race. Douglas is disappointed that Anthony refuses to support the measure. Anthony feels that since it does not include women, the amendment does not go far enough. Inside the meeting hall, these two ideological firebrands are locked in a fierce standoff. Douglas, struggling to keep the tremor from his voice, states, I do not see how anyone can pretend that there is the same urgency in giving the ballot to woman as the Negro. With us, the matter is a question of life and death. Anthony counters by suggesting that in spite of the injustices he faces as a black man, Mr. Douglas would not exchange his sex and take the place of a woman. The disagreement prompts an acrimonious split in the feminist movement. A more moderate branch forms the American Woman's Suffrage Association. Many of its members believe that it's too soon to push full voting rights through Congress. Meanwhile, Anthony and fellow activist Elizabeth Cady Stanton form the more radical National Woman's Suffrage Association. They adopt more aggressive lobbying tactics and even publish their own newspaper, The Revolution, with the motto, Men, their rights and nothing more. Women, their rights and nothing less. Anthony chooses to divide the movement rather than compromise. To justify this decision, she feels she needs to make a bold statement, something unprecedented. So in early November of 1872, Anthony puts a plan in motion. She marches into the Rochester voting office determined that she will make history and make the men of Washington take notice.
It's November 5th, 1872, voting day in America. Susan B. Anthony and her eight fellow suffragists stand in the Rochester voting office. An election official stares at them, slack-jawed. What they are asking is unlawful. Anthony's heart is pounding, but her voice is steady. She tells the voting official again, they are here to exercise their democratic right as citizens of this country. They are here to vote. The words alone give her a thrill. Whatever the consequences of this action might be, it will be worth it in the end. She thinks about everything they've been through to get here, how all of it has been leading to this moment. The flabbergasted election official informs them that they can't vote. New York doesn't extend the franchise to women. It would be illegal. He cannot allow it. Anthony sets her jaw. Her angular face is framed by two severe curtains of hair. She bores into the young official with her piercing brown eyes. She asks him if he's familiar with the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. He nods. Well then, she says, you'll know that anyone born or naturalized here in the United States is a citizen of the United States and thus should be entitled to vote. The official considers this, but suddenly something occurs to him. His face brightens as he asks, are any of you even registered to vote? Indeed, they are. Four days earlier, Anthony and her three sisters marched into the Rochester Voter Registration Office, temporarily set up in a barbershop. This stage of the plan was the biggest hurdle. If they were refused registration, they could not proceed with their plan. The registrar on duty was a weedy young bureaucrat with jittery eyes. When Anthony demanded that they register to vote, he refused. But Anthony was prepared. If you refuse our rights as citizens, she asserted, I will bring charges against you in criminal court. She paused before the final piece of her threat. I have Judge Selden as my lawyer. Judge Henry Selden, the former lieutenant governor of New York, was her attorney. Anthony knew the legal risk she was taking simply by attempting registration, so she had consulted with Selden first. He told her she might have a case. But the registrar thought Anthony was bluffing. Still, her threat caught the attention of the registrar's supervisor, an older man with oily, slick-backed hair. He scurried over and asked what the problem was. After the registrar explained, the supervisor glanced up, taking stock of Anthony. His mustachioed lip curled into a slippery smile, revealing tobacco-stained teeth. He told his younger colleague to register the ladies. He said, it will put the onus of the affair on them. So four days later, on voting day, November 5th, Anthony shows the flabbergasted election official the registration documents. As the official consults with his colleagues about what to do, Anthony prickles with anger. That her democratic freedom should be determined by these buffoons fills her with righteous indignation. But she holds her tongue. Eventually, the three officials turn to her. They have taken a vote. They have decided, two to one, to allow the women to cast their ballots. Anthony doesn't thank them. She merely proceeds to vote. She and the others select the name of their preferred candidate. Anthony votes for the incumbent, Ulysses S. Grant, whose manifesto is more favorable to women, she thinks. Then, with a surge of vindication and some trepidation for the consequences in store, the women drop their selections into the ballot box. It is a watershed moment. A triumphant Anthony will rush home and immediately write a letter to her friend, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. It will read, Dear Miss Stanton, I've been and gone and done it. 
positively voted the Republican ticket this morning at 7 o'clock. We are in for a fine agitation in Rochester. On November 18, 1872, Anthony hears the sound she's been expecting for weeks. A knock on her door. It's a U.S. Marshal with a warrant for her arrest. She is being charged with willfully breaking the law by voting. The Marshal appears somewhat sheepish as he comes in and removes his beaver skin hat. He sits at the parlor table and makes small talk about the weather. But Anthony cuts him off. She asks if he arrests men with such courtesy. The marshal replies, no. Anthony holds out her wrists and demands to be handcuffed. If she is a criminal, as they say she is, then they must treat her like one. Such bullishness will define Anthony's conduct throughout the indictment and trial. She later refused bail and spends several nights in prison. When her lawyer, Henry Selden, pays her bail for her, Anthony is furious. But once out, she spends the months before the court date giving endless lectures quoting from the Constitution and publicizing her unjust trial. In a simple gray dress and bonnet draped with a black veil, she exudes intelligence, sobriety, and eloquence. Ahead of the trial, even her prosecutor worries that no jury will be so ignorant on the citizens' rights as to find her guilty. But in July 1873, at a courthouse in Canandaigua, New York, Anthony is sentenced to pay a fine of $100 for the crime of voting. Anthony will call this the greatest judicial outrage history has ever recorded. When the judge bangs his gavel, demanding order, Anthony calmly declares, I shall never pay a dollar of your unjust penalty, and I shall urgently and persistently continue to urge all women to practice the old revolutionary maxim, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. And true to her word, Anthony never pays a dime. The trial propels her into even greater celebrity, or for some, notoriety. What they see as a patently unfair verdict pours fuel onto the suffragists' fire. Susan B. Anthony will not live to see it. She will pass away in 1906. But the fire she started will continue to burn for decades, until finally, in 1920, when the 19th Amendment is ratified and women are granted the right to vote. Next on History Daily, November 8, 1923. A young demigod named Adolf Hitler attempts to overthrow the Bavarian government in what will become known as the Beer Hall Putsch. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. 